1: hello and welcome to living history uk podcast and today for your listening pleasure we've uh, decided to go for some light relief i realized recently with all our podcasts and our social media outlets we've been quite heavy on world war ii and obviously the english civil war so today we're going to be breaking away from that we're going to be cracking out the machine guns we're going to be mounting the hueys because we're going to be talking about the vietnam war now my own background in this is my interest is you know obviously beforehand it's the french in indochina uh a good friend of mine uh those of you out there can google his name is brigadier hunter choate he served in the french foreign legion he served in algeria and he won the uh, Medal of the military middle medal of valor but he at the time was going off was indochina and the french there now the kit and equipment they were using out in indochina with the french was a surplus british surplus american some french stuff and a lot of locally made stuff and you hear stories of ex vaffan ss serving in uh, the french foreign legion out in indochina proven or otherwise um, but i now have after military odyssey especially with the beer tent on this on the friday saturday night there seems to be quite a heavy american vietnam presence in uh, drinking outfits shall we say so I thought the best person I could speak to before I create my own drinking outfit, shall we say, is the one and only Peter Neal.
2: Da, da 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 da
1: Yes, it is I, Pete Neal. <laughs> How you doing, mate? All right. Yeah, it seems like you're recovering now and plans ahead. But I thought, I thought, you know, we need to have some light relief. So, talking about the the, the basic American grunt, shall we say, of the Vietnam War. And the kit, because it seems to be from an uneducated eye, the kit doesn't seem to change much from the beginning to the end. Obviously, you see films like Forrest Gump, uh, and when they're and the other films where they're wearing this green jungle uniform, but there was quite a lot of variation, wasn't there? There is, yeah. It's it's one
2: of those like so to the untrained eye, it could look very standard, but there is subtle changes, and it's in some to some extent depend on what you're portraying and what you're doing you could be completely wrong in what you're doing
1: because of what you're wearing that's what i mean you have quite we're quite lucky with with the modern conflicts like the vietnam war it's we have that media we have those photographs we still have those veteran accounts we can actually go off of and surviving items haven't been doctored too much shall we say so we can actually look at look at that for source reference you know I know from my own interest, I'm looking down the route of the US Air Force in Vietnam and the spooky crews that is, the C 47s that have been fitted with the uh, miniguns on the side, and latterly, C 130 Hercules that were fitted with 40 millimeter quickfire Bofors for area suppression, so we say. Um, but your interest in it is mainly from the 101st, is it not? Well, it comes from a lot of different. Avenues, um mainly through
2: main mainly the infantry side of life. But originally um sort of ninth infantry division going to the air cav and more recently the hundred and first Airborne. Um because that's 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 the new well, I say new, I've been with them for quite a while now. Uh betraying um L Company Lurps in sort of sixty eight, sixty nine. Um yeah. So but like you said about the reference, there is great reference still to Vietnam, but the Also, most importantly, we're very fortunate because it's, I say, a recent conflict. The veterans are still around, you know, so the oldest of them are now coming into their 80s and the youngest of them are now in their 70s or about to turn 70. So the sort of the veteran source is very readily available still. Now I was very fortunate because when I started my journey in living history nearly 20 years ago, the The source was brilliant because those veterans are only in their fifties, and the oldest of them in their sixties, so they're just retiring or you know coming to the end of their working life, sort of thing. And they have been an absolute goldmine of information, and they've always been very willing to help as well. And I've still got uh, friends now through uh, the medium of uh, Facebook, and that's the best thing as well because obviously before it was like it'd have been emails and things like that. But uh a few of them, uh, being the generation they are, some of them are on Facebook. So you can just ping them a question. Um sometimes some of them I won't speak to for ages, but then I'll get a question a, a thought in my head. I go, actually, what, what would I what, what what was this all about? Ah, I know what I'll do. I'll ping a question to three of these people and see what they come up about. Like, How are you doing, mate? How's it going? Got a question for you. Then I've got three sources from veteran from veterans themselves going, oh yeah, well, I used one of them or no i heard about this but never saw it or used it or anything like that so yeah the veterans are still an absolute gold mine of information when it comes to this subject and they're more than happy to help more than happy
1: i think that goes back to the days yeah, obviously when vietnam was going the war is changing so to speak the political side in America, which we won't go into because don't do politics here and living in the yeah. UK. <laughs> yeah, that's for another episode. That could be an episode on its own the politics. Of the- <laughs> or, over, or over a few refreshing apple based beverages in a beer tent. Yeah. Um, I think they're happy to talk about it because they couldn't talk about it at the time. So mm. pulling a film reference, you know, for the so the layman like me I see the beginning of the war in a film reference I.E we were soldiers the Great Mal Gibson film which I think mean everyone in the world has watched at least 10 times but that was your regular army wasn't it that they weren't this was before conscription the draft as they, they called it came in so what was the the regular army wearing at the time? So they've got the M56 webbing, which
2: is standard webbing throughout the wall. You will get the M67. That comes in very late, but that literally comes in in dribs and drabs and never really a full set all the time. So M56 is what they're wearing, um, and their fatigue uniform as well, because jungle greens, or what we'll call jungle greens, haven't been invented yet. And also they're wearing normal army boots, the corkrum. Cork and jump boots black as well. and so black, and boot black, black boots yeah so you look at the type of boot that the american airborne soldier was wearing during world war ii just think of that but black basically in, in a simple form
1: <laughs> which obviously i um, feel like a wellington boot in the rain and the mud and the swamps and the rice paddies
2: yeah and also it was you know it's it wasn't a practical boot for the jungle um, so that's when they then came up with the jungle boots. And there's about three, four different types of jungle boot out there that they actually uh, created by the end of the war. Is, which is, is, in themselves is-, is, is like, you got the Mark 1, where you can tell Mark 1 because of the ankle support on the sides. There's, um, there's a nylon strip on the side, which doesn't exist on the Mark 1. So it's just a canvas sort of side with leather. Um they're the Mark 1s, but when it comes into the Mark 2s, that's where you get the different variants, so like different types of soles on a bit. So that's you've got to really know your stuff about jungle boots to know which, which jungle boot that is. But all tents and purposes, they can be used for whenever. Obviously, if you're going really into it, you want to know the exact date that particular jungle boot came out. Then yeah, uh, you'll want to wear a particular type of jungle boot. But yeah, a Mark II is a Mark
1: II in, in layman's terms. I think it's quite interesting when you look at the soles. I think I've been researching about what boots to buy for my new impression, and the soles were quite specific. So there's a design for the the punji stick. Now, those of you I, I've read about punji sticks and sim pictures, it's basically a uh, imagine digging a hole in your back garden that's the depth of a man or half the depth of a man and filling it with sticks that have been smeared in excrement and other nasty things so when you stand on it said stick will go will go through your weight of your body will push through your boot your sole of your foot and then obviously secondary infection so it was quite, I think there was a design element of the boot wasn't there there was it, it was a panama soles or something
2: yeah so there's 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 actually a still uh, alum, uh, uh, aluminum plate that runs through the bottom of it so if you get one of these jungle boots you actually cut it open there's actually a metal plate at the bottom of the boot. That's and that's the spike detector to stop to stop those punji sticks from going into your boot.
1: No, that's quite interesting. So that's that's, that's an interesting fact. So you see that on modern safety boots. You can see it on World War II boots. You can see a load of hobnails and leather. Um, but obviously the war is changing. Though obviously we're looking quite heavily at this at uh, the uh, the American commitment to the war. But we also had the, uh, the Australians and New Zealanders out there. And we did. Again, there were were unfortunately Australians and New Zealanders. Their kit was basically Second World War leftovers at the beginning of the war. And it was radically changed throughout the war. But I think a lot of the time it, it it aligned itself with American supply. It, yeah, Same it did. British by by the latter part of the war.
2: Yeah, by the latter part of the war, they. if you look at the Australian webbing, there's a very strong American influence on their web equipment.
1: Uh, uh, I, uh, I know I've seen examples of um, American M56 ammunition pouches. Where America being America, everything's got to be branded. You know, it's like Nike, bollard Budget. So yeah. they put they put U.S. on there. Of course, the Australians being Australians, added an A and a T and made it. Yeah, Aust- you do
2: see that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You, I've, you do see a few photographs of blokes doing that from the Australian side. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so I always I always giggle that. You know, I thought that's quite a uh, unique thing to do. But so if we're looking at the middle of the war, then we've progressed on slightly um a good middle of the war film something like platoon or forrest gump yeah yeah i suppose Um, you could say that yeah forrest gump platoon forrest gump should we say so so by that time obviously they're learning their lessons in the jungle warfare you know obviously probably probably influenced by the british element in borneo and malaya but we'll come back to that in a bit so how had the kit changed by the middle of the war is it, it, it it they come up with this jungle
2: uniform they have by this point yeah so we're now working with what we call jungle greens so you've got the various different patterns of jungle greens uh so you've got the mark ones which is poplin uh mark one poplins and it's based on the uh actually on the american m42 jumpsuit from the second world war when you actually look at the style of the pockets oh, yeah. um, <laughs> it's very much based on that on that sort of look uh but it was made of poplin and it ripped easy so they were like well that's no good is it uh, so the Mark 1s, uh, if you do manage to find some original Mark 1s, they do fetch a pretty penny now, but they were no good. So they then came up with the Mark 2s, and then event, then finally they came up with the Mark 3s. Now the Mark 3s, again, with very subtle changes in, in the configuration of, of, of how it looks, but the basics of it, the way the, way the pockets are, things like that, but um, still made a poplin, but it's what they call ripstop poplin. So still made a poplin. But it's loads of little squares on it, so it's like an anti-rip mechanism on the uh, shirt and jacket.
1: Yeah, especially in the jungle, you see, going to get those of you who've worked in close jungle or woodland, you know, going to get ripped on various nasty things. And obviously, the last five minutes, you know, I remember talking to guys who'd served in Malaya in the fifties and you know, in the fifties, and they were saying that <clears throat> after a patrol, they'd been out for say several weeks in the, in the jungle for patrol, they'd all get on the parade square. They were ordered to strip naked on the parade square, and all their uniforms were basically just burnt mm. because they're that infested, rotten, you know. And they just issued with fresh kit after a, a, a wash and a de-lousing. So obviously, I don't know if the American procedure after patrol would have been the same, but I would, I'd imagine there was a high attrition rate of kit and equipment out there.
2: Oh, there is. Yeah, um, they did have laundry service, so they did have um, their uniforms laundered. But I think all again, it's one of it's whatever they're doing at the time so if they've been out for a couple of months um yeah get them back just burn it that's the easiest thing to do because it's it's pl- in plentiful supply you know this is the americans we're dealing with here we're not working to a budget you know like the australians and uh new zealanders are um So, yes, I mean, it it very much depended on what they're doing at the time. So they might come in and go, right, strip off. That's all going off to laundry. So they will just get it washed or they'll be like, nah, just strip it off. We'll
1: burn it. I know working with the Americans in Afghanistan, I know my experience of the war was different to the guys in the front. um, But in the the rear with the gear, so to speak, the British mess was mints four days a week and pastoral on the fifth day with with mints in it but you went over the american mess and you're guaranteed on the friday it was, it was a steak and surf night you know and an and energy drink some fresh ice cream and milk and you're thinking the american supply chain is just an unbelievable thing and you can see why in vietnam and see in world or two looking back to that but british and commonwealth units were quite happy to be aligned with american units in those areas well their-
2: yeah you know you're saying that like. You know, while while the uh, the grunts, uh, as they as they called the infantrymen out there, where you'd be like on, on a month operation or two month operation out in the uh, out in the jungle, the boonies as it was as they called it, they'd get ice cream sent out to them. So when they have, when they'd have their big resupplies, um, they'd have they'd have a proper meal. So where they'd been living out the sea rats for a couple of weeks, so about once a month or every week again depending on what the circumstances is either once a week or once a month uh generally once a month uh, once a week sorry there'll be a full resupply so there'll be a so they'll actually set up a LZ for the helicopters and they'll be bringing in all sorts of actual water ammunition new bits of kit that blokes have lost and things like that and but with that will come the hot meals so they'll actually line up out there in the field with their uh, mess tins or or dinner tray and they would have a normal meal. And but with that meal, they might get a can of beer or a bottle of coke or a bottle of coke and a can of beer uh, and then ice cream as well, because they'll have them sent out in the mermites, so
1: they'd have ice cream as well for dessert you, you think you think back now to you know obviously Vietnam was probably one of the turning points uh, of modern warfare, shall we say? With the, with the, with that supply element, you know, and and especially with the use of the helicopter as as the workhorse, you know, obviously supply drops in World War Two via Dakota or whatever, you know, was just being trialed, and the British in Malaya and Borneo were were trialing the idea of helicopters and doing resupplies and parachute resupplies into the jungle, but. It's Vietnam where we see the, the helicopter really coming into its its own as a it, war yeah course. it does it was it's a lorry yeah. of the skies isn't it really it's the it's it's pickup a, truck yeah. of the sky.
2: It, yeah it does you know I think you could quite um, say quite rightly it was the helicopter war because they yeah. they relied so much on the helicopter either be a Chinook or um, or Huey. You know uh, the uh, counter
1: rotating flying banana of death in the chunuk
2: <laughs> yeah um but yeah they relied so much on it and it did become a helicopter war for them especially from the infantryman's point of view because that was the only way in and out most of the time in and out the jungle for him was was in was in a helicopter um unless he's his, uh, his base camp or what we call a fob uh is his his base camp was operated from so they'd walk out the base camp come back in go out for a month or something like that and end up back at their base camp but yeah it's um or firebase sorry no the fire base is uh... oh, sorry, I'm getting bloody confused with myself now
1: <laughs> I'm that's bloody a... confused that's myself That's the problem with the multi period you see It is yeah you've got a yeah, so between... base camp
2: so base camp is it's... somewhere like camp bastion that's base camp so that's where everything you want is there that's where your px's are and everything you can sort of think of in that regard that's at the base camps then you've got the uh yeah base yeah base camp well,
1: it'd be yeah. operating bases fobs
2: yeah so they'll be the fire bases ah, so see, what I you see. call a fob is, is a fire base Ah. That so that's what they're operating out of Into the jungle So that'll be a very small fire base So there'll be a couple of artillery pieces there And that'll be that So a lot of their area of operations Will be within range of those 105 guns
1: So the, um, unique, the, new, the unique factor I think with Vietnam is Obviously they talk about conscription The draft as it were yeah. In Britain we had National Service, and National Service you know, The National Service Act that started in 1939 So it would already been embedded In the British ethos And obviously it finished by the early nineteen sixties, I think sixty two, sixty three National Service Act finished. Um but obviously with the, with the with the developing war in Vietnam, um and the support from the the Red Alliance, so to speak, from the north, um, you needed the draft in America and obviously you had a you had a change in cal- it's a rude thing to say, but changing calibre, but a change in ethos of the soldier, you know, a drafty he may be keen and eager to, to go out there, but 99.9% of the time, he's been drafted from an occupation he didn't want to go into. Um, you had Obviously, you've told me in the past, Pete, about having pro-war and anti-war. And I think the, the great group who represent this very well within the living UK Living History Circuit is uh, Rolling Thunder, where they have their goddamn hippie peace protesters on one side, uh, waving their placards and that, and then you have the military side. So yeah, that's quite a unique thing to see. And it's worth going to see, especially when you see them when they do the big mm-hmm. efforts. I saw them I saw him this year at Capel, and uh, I believe some elements were a military odyssey. I didn't get chance to wander around, which was a great annoyance to see that side of it. But you know, in War and Peace in the past, they have filled half a field themselves. Um, but that they're a mixed bag, representing everything to do with the war rather than one specific operation time period. Um, so, so moving after the conscription come in the draft yeah. late war is is it like like your apocalypse now type film where you've got such a mixed bag of characters in one cooking pot,
2: yeah, you kind of have yeah, so you you have got your professional soldiers, they still exist, you know you've got the blokes who are there, because that's their chosen career path um but by the latter part of the war so if we're coming into say the nineteen very early 1970s to like the end of the american involvement is though by this point now them sort of blokes if you know if they could be on their third or fourth tour they're now the senior nco's you know they're the master sergeants or they're the company commanders or they're the battalion commanders um or you got you know or you got bloke or you got some of them that have not less yeah like a a normal professional army you've got the blokes who are progressing and you've got the blokes who will be at that whatever rank there are for a very long time um but then like you said then you've got your conscripts so you've got the mixed bag with the conscripts um you've got the ones that are like well i've got no choice in the matter i've got this two years it's a year stateside and a year in vietnam so i just knuckle down try and get home you know with that normal national serviceman sort of attitude you know like we had with the lads who went to Korea and Malaya and things like that you know with that sort of attitude of well I'll I'll do my time and that's it I'm going but then you've got the ones who didn't want any involvement in that whatsoever because obviously we've got the peace movement um becomes quite big a lot of anti-war um fractions have risen during this period as well so you've got these people who don't want to be there and the only reason that they're there is so they don't go to prison basically it's like go to the army you're going to go to prison you know regardless what you believe in so these blokes are like well and I'm, i'm going to go then and if i go to vietnam i'm just going to do my thing you know and a bit like the national service i'm going to go down i'm going to go there i ain't going to necessarily knuckle down but when i've got to do what i've got to do i'm going to do it but when I get back, I'll do what I like. I if
1: I if I want to smoke a joint, I'll smoke a joint. <laughs> is, that you, is that is that where you see is that where you see the kit <laughs> deviating away from the pamphlet, so to speak? Where you see a lot of these personalisations in other than I say this I say this as other than for like field modifications, where guys who've served, you know, people who listen to this podcast who've served in the forces will know that. You know, you realise, oh, I can, I can cut my shirt down and do one fold and it looks like I've rolled my sleeves up, you know. I know I can get away with doing this. I can wear civvy boots that look kind of military. I'm more talking about when you see, for example, the graffiti on helmets, the peace symbols being drawn on uniforms, the the beads around the neck, like like, like a hippie beads. you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Is that when you see it in it, you see this change of...
2: Yeah, that's when you sort of start seeing it. Yeah, it kind of... Um so how I kind of see it, it kind of starts creeping in around about 1967 ish now I say that because the because it's still quite pro-war so you've got the anti-war side but you've got the pro the basically the pro sort of out waves outweighs the anti in 67 so it's when it comes to 1968 is where it kind of turns around on its head where you get when suddenly this anti-war movement kind of overtakes this pro-war movement um but a lot of what you're seeing is um where they're going out out of say the the bible of manual <laughs> um, pamphlet of soldiering yeah pamphlet of soldiering is it's just a, a personal experience so they're going you know what I, I, if I add another pouch here this is this would be better because of X y and Z if I put another what you know waters you know in those environments is a commodity you know it's so hang on a minute what if I put an extra water bottle here and then with the rocks as well because the the lightweight ruck which was the standard uh rucksack for the infantryman um you could add to that so you had your your actual bag itself, but then there was an extra half a frame where you could actually add things onto it. I don't want I could add a few more water bottles onto it. I could add another pouch on air for a minute, or you know, bits and pieces. It's, you know, it's it's very much like how soldiers work today, where you go, actually, this works for me, so I'm gonna do I'm gonna do this. Yeah. Um, and then but then when you say like you got things like um helmet graffiti. That's one of the things in Living History that re- and reenacting that really does grind my gears because when you actually look at the evidence, not everybody's doing it. So if you turn up to a Living History event, you think everyone's doing it. And the thing is, you've got films like uh, Full Metal Jacket and Patoon to thank for that, where uh, you see every bloke with some form of graffiti on his helmet when it's not as common as what it's made out to be. And the reason why people go oh, yeah, they had graffiti on the helmet because uh, of all this self-expression. It's like, no, it's because a photographer thought that was interesting to take a picture of. If you've got yeah. 20 blokes sat in front of you and they've all got the same helmet on and the same style of helmet cover, but then suddenly one bloke out of that 20 has got, I don't know, um, the name of the state he comes from or the county he comes from or whatever, any form of graffiti whatsoever. You go, hang on, that's interesting. Click. And then suddenly this picture, through the, you know, the waves of time, becomes a picture in a book, and then it could become a picture in a documentary, and that's where people start going, oh, yeah, they're always doing it. No, it's because that person who took that photograph or that film footage found, saw that
1: subject interesting to take that picture of, um, to capture it's, that person. It's like we say when we, we do other things, you know, yes, we've got lots of evidence But it's worth getting four or five pieces of evidence from from the same action or the same unit and basing what you're doing on an average. And also, I think it's very important, especially with the Vietnam War and the way of fighting in the Far East, is the way that people can't have kit that looks like it's been pulled freshly, uh, freshly, you know, it's not been used and abused. You know, for example, the great film I remember watching as a child, which I've still got a copy of now, which I still love, is Hamburger Hill. And you can see the mud and the attrition rate and the basic working on a patrol your kit was used and abused and i think the us in the living history community need to realize that and actually you know leave some jungle. if you're you know my plan is when i put together my my jungle green uniform it'll be left out probably in the garden for a month or two just to get that weathered in looked where it looked laundered a load of times Um, yeah and and that's
2: the best thing to do when it comes to doing vietnam yeah is when soon as you get your jungle greens boil it in salt that's what I've done in the past. So you take your jungle greens, boil it in salt, then just leave that on the washing line. It's best to do it like in the summer, so you've got the sun beating down on it as well. So it helps yeah, yeah. fade it out. But also that's that's from like you said, the use of wear, but also their laundry service as well. Cause that's where you was like you will see some photographs, I don't know, say like blokes of the 101st Airborne. You'll see some 101st airborne blokes like sat around eating their sea rats out in the field or something like that. But when you actually look at them, you go, hang on a minute, there's a mark on their shirt and that's clearly a cavalry shield (laughs) that that they're wearing (laughs) well what was a cavalry shield on their shirt so what's happened at some point through the laundry service there's been some sort of mix up the launder and they've had these shirts delivered to them but they but the blokes who wore them before were from the uh first cab said oh we'll have to take these bloody shields off so they take the shields off worn the shirt so they got the mark, of where uh, yeah. you know, where you know, where, where it's faded around the patch, you've got these blokes sat there with the what was the previous unit that those shirts came from. But it, but it, you know, it, it, that's one of those little those little details.
1: Well, little details with American kit as well. I know from the World War II side of things is laundry marks using the first, I think, I don't know if it happened in the Vietnam. I'll have to research this, so I'm not going to quote it, but I know in World War II. The Americans used a laundry mark, same basically as those who served the British Army's ZAP number. And what the U.S. World War II one was, was the first letter of your surname. So mine is R for Reese. Mm-hmm. And the last four of your service number. Obviously, I'm not going to give you the last four of my service number because half of you will then try my bank account. But hey-ho. Um, it's, I don't know if I carried it in Vietnam. Probably did. Um, but I think it's those little details when you add it to your uniform. That you need to consider. Um, and it seems to have seen about unit insignia being removed. I know earlier in the war there was a lot of stateside supplied insignia, but you yeah. see, especially like in Afghanistan, you had the boardwalk in Kandahar where you had all the tailors knocking up whatever badge you could draw on the back of a fag packet. But you see that a lot in Vietnam as well. And you see a lot on eBay yeah. being punted as original, but obviously they've been made yesterday. Yeah. Uh But uniform uh, insignia, not just the standard U.S. Army, U.S. Air Force, but unit badges and qualification badges that have been made in country.
2: Yeah, yeah. So when you get into the latter part of the war, it's mainly in-country made stuff that you'll see in the blokes wearing. That's even down to like the U.S. Army tape that's been that's been made in country.
1: No, it's very interesting. So
2: it is interesting. So yeah, you do get some stateside stuff, but by i'd say quite you know um quite firmly by 68 most of the blokes feel wearing a patch it, it was made in country yeah it was
1: exactly like, yeah you know, for example when we deployed to afghanistan the first thing you did was you took your massive floppy sun hat you took it down to the tailors on the boardwalk and you had it cut down into the synonymous british army pork pie style sun hat um yeah, yeah you but... see a little bit of that because the things they don't because with 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 the americans
2: they're not they haven't really gone in for what we you know like the australians the, the australians are wearing bush hats because they've been doing that since malera and borneo same as the british birth, Army, probably the australians. yeah so um yeah, yeah. it's very the strange the, yeah so the americans you're not they're not really wear they are wearing the booney hats they do wear them out in the jungle but it's mainly hel- they're wearing helmets when they're out there but yeah. when you get to the latter part of the war coming into 1970 they're kind of that's the thing is because they're kind of sort of lagging behind a little bit to what say like your australians are doing because obviously the australians were born jungle fighters because of their experiences from malaya and borneo and things like that so you know they they in a way it was from their sort of american higher command they're kind of ignoring what the australians are doing it's like we want to know what to do here. Do what the Australia do what the Anzacs are doing. Do as the Anzac does. Yeah. You know, um, you know why the Anzacs had such a success in their area of operation down in poctoy Province. Their area of operations was pretty much a hundred percent success in the, in what they were doing down there because they knew how to they knew from fighting in Malaya and fighting in Borneo how to fight a counterinsurgency war in the jungle. They tried telling the American command, higher command, saying, "This is what you need to be doing." And then their higher command were like, "Don't tell us what to do, mate."
1: Yeah. And
2: and it showed It does show, you know. And you know, if they did as the ANZACS did, I think that 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 element of the Cold War would have been won. I like think a, if, they I did it, so you, if they had done what if they did what the ANZAC did,
1: I know but, we don't want to dip into politics, but I don't.
2: No, no, no,
1: yeah. I'm going to touch on it briefly before moving on. But does that relate back to how, for example, when Australian SES were doing um, exchange tours, and possibly SES doing exchange tours into Vietnam, um, with the hearts and minds principles rather than the, the than yeah you know, the hearts and minds of getting the villagers and towns people on board by offering aid, medical support, rather yeah, so than
2: the, but- yeah, the Americans did do that.
1: They you know they did try and go out to
2: you know, the villages and uh little settlements to, to to do things like that. But what they then sort of started learning was is that they'd go and do that, but because they weren't operating as a presence, so they'd leave, then the VC will come in and they'll like kill five, five elders to teach them yeah, lesson for yeah. accepting aid off of the Americans and things like that. So yeah, it, yeah, it's it's one of those of you know, you could dive into policy. There were so many things. I think it's just I think it's one of those things that just went into the wheel of into the wheel of things that went wrong in that conflict,
1: mm. I think. I, I think it's interesting if you're going to represent something as well, you have a little bit of knowledge into this because obviously mm. sometimes you may be questioned on it. It's not it isn't just a fancy dress uniform. And those those messages we joke to the entertaining, isn't a new beer tent uniform, but you have to have an understanding of what you're wearing yeah. and why you're wearing it. I think
2: it. with the American point of view, well, when I say I say they're high command, you know, don't take away what those lads on the ground were doing. Um, because they were doing the best they could with the kit and equipment yeah, yeah. and the protocol they had to go by. The doctrines um, is, Yeah, basically. the doctrines, yes. Um for the American High Command, it was all about body count. That's how they thought they were going to win that war. Or well, win I say what well, conflict, because they uh, you know, they they they, they the uh, they were sort of seen as a police action. So the American High Command saw it as a body count. So the more we kill of theirs, the higher chance we're going to win. That, that's literally the mentality that we had. Um, I, we had the Americans. Yeah. Had. Um, that, um, so that was, that was the mentality of that. The more of theirs we kill, we're going to win. But then I said, the Anzacs come along. I went, no, you don't really want to be doing it like that, mate, because we've worked in Borneo and Malaya. And this is how we've won those conflicts <laughs> <laughs> because we. This is how we were doing it, and you know, it's it's almost like one of those. Like you, you get someone come up to you, knows exactly what they're talking about, but you think you know better than that person, and you go, "Actually, you don't know what you're talking about, mate," because I've got all of this gear and you haven't. So I think it's, I think it's one of those cases of you. you I you know, you've got someone who knows what they're talking about, but, but the person that's been constructively criticized won't take the constructive criticism and just blows it away and goes no no you don't know what you're talking about because my way is going to be the better way um but then like i said just earlier on the success rate in Pukpoi province and then when you go into the different core areas of the american operations and you actually look at the success rate of the anzacs it does outweigh what the Americans were doing because they had a presence. Because for the Australians, it was all about the presence and denying the ground to the enemy. So the Americans would go in, take ground, they'll leave. And then the MVA or VC or both will just wander straight back in and they'll have to do it all again next week to take that ground off them again because they weren't inserting a presence like they did in Poc province.
1: Well, I think that's fantastic. I think we've covered covered all... Yeah. The background into the conflict is is very interesting. I think it's something that if you want interest in representing this era, it's something And know, this is literally so we,
2: we, this is scratching the surface. Oh yeah, definitely. I know uh, I know this is this is just literally just turned into a mishmash. Um <laughs> I, we were trying to talk about the kit the blokes are bloody wearing. Um I'd have to uh, rein yeah. you in here and get
1: my fishing rod now. Come on, Peter. It, 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 I you know we've got a bite. Yeah, it. yeah.
2: Yeah. Um yeah, because it's yeah, so yeah, trying to talk about the kit, but then we've just gone into a massive tangent of what they're doing operationally and things like that. But this is literally right on the very surface and very yeah. basic. One, what you need to do, you know, if you do have that interest in Vietnam is, is, to, is to get those veteran sources, look at the documentaries, also listen to what the historians are saying about it as well, because this is one of these conflicts where historians are great at telling you what's going on, but it's the it's the men on the ground that have the real information because they're telling you exactly what they're doing and how they're doing it um and it's in it's just mind-blowing absolutely mind-blowing to what's going on you know take away from the politics you know of what was going on at that time in and out country okay um and there's obviously the pop culture of what it was all about to be a vietnam war soldier take that out of it as well and you know just take it straight down to what it is and what they're doing in that conflict it is a very very interesting conflict and i knew none of this when i started at 16 years old all i'd done like you danny i'd watched platoon i'd watched full metal jacket i would watched forrest gump and when i went to see the american infantry preservation society i thought to myself i know nothing about the vietnam war i think this could be quite interesting and then that was it and i learned in those couple of years I literally hadn't realized how much there is to learn about the Vietnam war. You know, you could go into very different specialities. you know, where blokes would go, well, I specialize on the infantryman. I, I specialize on the air force side of things. But now it, it, you could go into all sorts of different caverns with Vietnam. It's it, there's it's a lot great. to take in a lot to take in with Vietnam.
1: So if, those of you out there who are listening, who want to represent, say, an Australian or a New Zealander, I recommend highly recommend the videos on YouTube by Rifleman Moore, because he's done full kit impressions on mannequins of the kit of the. Australian he's got the very human. good,
2: actually. He's got he, his collections gotten very, very good for the Anzacs. So
1: it's, it's always worth to say those of you out there tuning in, watching, and he's a but, friend of ours as well. Friend,
2: he's a friend, special friend, special friend, friend, special um, friend.
1: <laughs> So kit for Australians, you're looking originals or what price glory for reproductions, um, or tailoring yourself or using American stuff. But for an American, for those of you out there who were interested in representing the American forces during Vietnam, sources for kit, it's originals and is Epic and Soldier Fortune do it then. Yeah,
2: they? so uh yeah, so originals, originals are still um obtainable. Uh They've gone up a lot in price since I bought all my stuff. Uh, when I, cause I, I took a massive break from the Vietnam side of life and it's only because of me mate Les that I got back into it again. And I'm, all I can say is I'm glad I never sold any of my stuff. yeah, When people were telling me, well, when they'd... Uh, You know they were starting to build their stuff up and they were saying how much they're paying for a lightweight rock or you know i was like what i was i bought that they were like 100 pounds when i started they're now like 500 pounds it's ridiculous but for reproduction so for you know like anything original to find the large gentleman's size is is quite hard is quite hard um so if you can't find an original or don't have the budget to get an original one, then you have the reproduction. So like Danny said, Epic Military do a very good Mark I Jungle Fatigues. Um, so that's the Mark One Poplin. Um, Soldier of Fortune, they also do the Mark I, Mark Threes as well. So you can get your Jungle Greens from there. But the best one to go to is actually Moore's Military in America. You're paying the price for it. You know, you are paying. You are going to be paying a price tag, especially with the shipping into the UK. But their their reproductions on uniforms from the Vietnam War, uh, from the American side of things, is very, very, very good. Very good.
1: I think I'll be taking a visit to that website in a bit and having a having a rummage to see what I I fancy treating myself to. Um, as you said, Peter, the the sources out there now for reproduction kits is 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 good and just remember to shop around and also ask people and also look for reviews on youtube because we've done reviews or you've done reviews Pete on on the, the epic military stuff and it's important i think those of you who are spending your hard-earned pennies to get those independent yeah. reviews just don't go out Send there and buy boots. It and stuff yeah, boots. boots
2: as well if you can't get the originals um what price glory uh, what price glory in america are selling the best reproduction of a jungle boot at the moment they are the best one uh for jungle boots um webbing as well uh there is reproductions of the webbing just by original because even the 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 reproductions aren't quite right there's a there's a weird look to the reproductions of the webbing and it's one of them looks where it's like yeah we can see where you're going with this but it's still it's not like it is on the originals so spend that extra bit of money on getting the original stuff and 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 the original webbing is still quite obtainable. Um so, yeah, whether you're looking at
1: DX or um Denix. Airsoft? airsoft. Yes, no, Does I'd it... go with
2: Airsoft, yeah. I wouldn't you know if you want to go with a DENIX M16, go with a DENIX M16, but I'd, i I I I'd highly recommend an airsoft, to be quite honest. The Airsoft have come Leaps and bounds and over the years, and you know, and the price of a DIAC now, um, you know, I think it's more well, you could be looking at 800 pounds for an M16, mm. a Vietnam War M16. And getting
1: i getting airsoft. The, I still have to get yeah. it in there that the uh, SAS were the first to use the M16 compared to the Americans. Just want to put that in, there. <laughs> Just want to get that in yeah. there. I always say it, and it always causes a lot of uproar, but it is true. The SAS were the first to use the M16 in the jungles of Borneo, and they proved then it wasn't a self cleaning rifle. Mm.
2: Well yeah. Uh and same with M sixties as well. Um if you don't have the pri- if you don't have the budget to get a deactivated Vietnam era M sixty, uh airsoft, again, the airsoft all metal ones are very, very good. Um M fourteens, don't forget the humble M14, what I'd like to call the American version of the SLR. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, which was a weapon used early on. So, you know, if you're looking at 1965, there were still some infantry units using the M14, but the ones that made it the most famous during the Vietnam War were the Marines. The Marines were still using it in 1968. um, Oh, really? Yeah, the American, uh, the US Marine Corps. Yeah, the Marine Corps was still using M14s. Even by 1968, they were still using them. By 68, there was a big mishmash of m16s and m14s but yeah the m14 was very much a is an iconic weapon of the marine corps during the vietnam period where the rest of the arm where the army had pretty much binned them off by 1965 there is a there is some photographs of the in like the really early days of when they first landed with some of the infantry i think it's first infantry division i think it is i want to say the first off the top of my head Um, I think it's the 1st Infantry Division in 1965, you see a few of them walking around with M14s, but by the time the second lot came in, they're all using M16s, they are.
1: So it's quite, you see, with the airsoft one as well, it's worth, if if those of you are interested in doing for example, the special forces or special ops side of things, um, getting an airsoft one means you can do the the bubber slrs where they cut the barrels off and you can do uh, the m16s and the m60s where they cut them down and did various modifications or strap things to obviously you would not do that with a diac because that is a defacing a diac but also is illegal because you're you're affecting a deactorated weapon but with an airsoft or a denix you can we can more happily cut them up paint them strap things on screw things to them cut yeah the barrels down. and
2: that you know that leads on to like another a rabbit hole of weapon <laughs> variants. not another one peter of, of the vietnam war used by the various uh specialized units you know because obviously some of the uh mods that these special forces units were doing can't you won't get away with that as a normal infantryman so as a normal infantryman it's a it's an m16 that is it you're you, you might add um uh, say a cleaning rod to it or something like that where you'd get the cleaning rod going down the side held on with a bit of uh, electrical tape or uh, duct tape. Um, but that's about all, you know, that's about as far as it goes. You do see a couple of blokes taping magazines on, you know, where you've got uh, two magazines taped together. You'll see little variants like that. Or when the uh, grenade launcher comes into use, you'll you'll get a couple of blokes with a grenade launcher. But that, but that it says its most basic thing. When it gets into the special forces world, when you're going into the LERPs, the Fish Special Forces, the SAS, they're they're doing modifications that you're not going to get away with being a normal infantryman. So, like Danny's already said, if you're doing SAS in Vietnam, you've got the opportunity to make like a uh, uh, turn an, an SLR into a carbine variant, you know. But this was all done by their armors and their people, and you know, uh, and same with the M16s painting them that was a big thing with the sas in vietnam painting the weapons they're big on painting even their webbing needs to paint the webbing up uh to make everything as camouflaged as possible uh cutting the muzzle off the m16s you know you can't do that with dia because danny's already gone through the rig rule of you know you can't do that but with an airsoft or rep you can do that with with those but you can't get away with it as a normal infantryman. So if that's your chosen profession as a reenactor, or living history or living historian that you're going to do of that, that sort of very specific special forces unit, then yeah, go for it. Do those modifications, that they, what they've done, but don't do it as an infantryman because you're not going to get away with it. You'll get some people go, oh yes, but the person that I'm portraying was a ranger, commando, airborne warrior. And it's like, no, mate, you, you've gone to an infantry unit. <laughs> <laughs> so you're drawing out the armory, what everyone else is drawing out the armory. So what you're, where, what you've got there, all these weird mods and everything like that, on you ain't going to get away with that, mate. I'm afraid, <laughs> even with the mixed match kit that's going on in
1: 1968, 69. <laughs> so what's what's so what's Peter's? P, watch Peter sit on the knee of Peter. What's Peter's top tip for the new Vietnam man actor?
2: Uh. Try and get in touch with some veterans. That's my top tip. Yeah. Veterans first. I like that. Veterans. Yeah. Because we're still, you know, we're still luckily still, as I mentioned at the beginning, these blokes are in their 70s now. And, you know, in the next 30 years, they're going to be like the World War II veterans. There isn't going to be any left. So if you're part of a Vietnam group or you're, you've just joined a Vietnam group, um, if they're not friends with veterans, m- well, get them to start making those connections because they are the best source of information, because especially if they're blokes from the unit that you're portraying, because that's something that we got right when I was in the UK air cav. So we portrayed Charlie 27 of the seventh cavalry. So that was the second battalion. So it was the seventh cavalry, second battalion, Charlie company. Um, And we are actually, we were friends with the real Charlie 27 blokes. So the lads who are in Charlie company, second battalion seventh cavalry from 1968 to 1969 we were friends with them um we we, we used to send like representatives to their big reunion They'd have a, they have a big reunion once a year and uh usually three or four blokes would fly over for their reunion in, invited as guests to their reunion and that's how i managed to get my contacts um with the veterans because because we're betraying them they were more than happy for us f- you know, to use them as their source of information. So like I said, you go, well, should I be wearing this bit of kit like this or something like, I oh, know. Well, I'll ask one of the blokes and you go to the early days of this podcast, John Guillory. Uh yes. He had yes. that brilliant two part interview. Who was platoon commander in Charlie two seven. Um, you know, I've been friends with him over the uh, Facebook for nearly 15 years and he's been an excellent source of information, not only from a platoon commander's perspective, but what he saw with his own eyes. I've asked him loads of questions. So, have you ever seen this? And he goes, no, never saw it. <laughs> yeah, But they're, you know, they're the blokes you need to talk to, especially if you're portraying a certain unit. Either if you can't, you know, if you don't have that luxury of speaking to one of the men that you're portraying, literally one of the men you're portraying, go to the account, see if, see if, one of the veterans has written a book about what they got up to, because you can find a lot of information in there. Maybe not necessarily about the intricacies of kit, but what they're doing as a unit, how they're operating as a unit and things like that. So veterans, veteran accounts, then go into your documentaries and you know books by historians and all that sort of thing. Also, I mean, listen, listen to the blokes who have been doing it for quite a while as well, where to get your kit from as well, because that's the other thing when you first get into this hobby, it doesn't matter if you're a Saxon a Roman or, uh, first world war, second world war, you come into this and you've never done anything like this in your life. You're going to get led down the garden path by many people. And when I say many people, it'd be
1: people trying to sell you stuff
2: so, yeah. so... <laughs>
1: I, I do I do hope in the future to get um, Dan Mckay on from the uh, Mistrop forty four because he is very vocal in the world of the bad hundred and first airborne world War twoI reenactor so I will try and get him onto the podcast at some point because I think his uh, his views on on bad reenacting will be quite humorous and uh, enlightening for us all but no yeah. If you've liked what you've heard here today, and like like some more talks like this, some more kit talks, some more kits—I will call it kit and rabbit Warrens—with uh, uh, with you and me, Peter, because we seem to go down randomness. It sounds like it sounds like a night on Wikipedia, re- reading all night different things. But
2: yeah, yeah, I said it's 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 gone. Yeah, it it just goes off like we've got the lit. We literally we've got like the script out in like, front, the prompt in front of us, and well, I think the prompt went in the bin about twenty minutes ago. I think. <laughs> <laughs>
1: um... If you, if you like what you hear, remember drop us a line. We're on Discord, we're on Facebook, and all the other social media traits. Drop a line and say maybe you want to uh, have a chat about something we've represented in the past. You know, I've represented World War Two German and all sorts. So if you want to speak to yes, uh, speak to anything about that, just remember communication works both ways. So we're sending, we want you to receive and send as well. So, remember, and, just, remember- and also
2: I, I'll, I'll oh. just I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna put a plug in here as well. I'm gonna bit of bit of advertising as well. <laughs> so. We also, if you do like what you're listening to and you love the documentaries that we make as well, you can actually support us in your own way. Obviously, we have the advert that goes on about joining our Patreon. If you can, that'd be brilliant because only a pound a month and that helps us out massively. But we've got our own merchandise as well. So you could be your proud owner of a Living History UK T-shirt or a living history uk mug and it's a brilliant uh both both uh, they're absolutely brilliant um they the t-shirts all come in black um and it's a timeline of the british soldier from the english civil war or war of the three kingdoms as steve likes to call it uh which is really what it should be called um
1: and the 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 mugs are very good the mugs can hold hot and cold drinks but not together
2: yeah, yeah, don't do that at the same time because that won't work. But ice into
1: tomato soup. Yeah,
2: but the mugs, um, exactly the same as the T-shirt, it's the timeline of the British soldier from the English Civil War all the way up to the modern day, and they are at competitive prices. And every purchase that you make goes straight back into our channel, be it to help us run the podcast or make and run the documentaries also so uh,
1: if that's you an don't important wanna... point to get across we don't spend the money on we're not wittering any money that's donated to the channel or from purchases it isn't whittled away on kit or nights out We're actually mm. all this money is ring fenced and used directly into paying for this podcasting. we've got we've got to pay to upload this and pay to host it we've got to pay to go into places, for example, coming up soon, we're going to go to the National Civil War Center. That's going to cost money for us to get in, you know, and, it's, and to it's, drive there as well, and drive there because unfortunately, <laughs> my car doesn't work off hopes and kisses. Um, yeah, but yeah, yeah. yeah, so, yeah really... so
2: you can. So if you're able to, please, please purchase one of our either a mug or a t shirt. I highly recommend the mug because you'll probably get more use out of it.
1: I <laughs> like the t shirts because it hides grease and oil stains.
2: It does. Yes, the dark. I think that was the right choice that we made there with, the, with it, with them all being black as well, because, it,
1: like you said, it it hides it hides the and common. not KFC gravy stains for you, Peter. <laughs>
2: yeah,
1: and all you of do, those do. are available in the Living History UK shop. So, until next time, together, Peter. Come on, three, two, one, keep history, keep history alive. alive. If
2: you've enjoyed this podcast and want to support it then why not send us a PayPal donation? All donations help us pay to host the podcast and for us to create new content for your enjoyment. Furthermore, if you would like to submit a question or even a subject matter for the podcast, join Patreon and send us a message. We'd love to hear from you. The links are in our bio. Until next time, keep history alive.
0: Selling a little or a lot? Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com work. Shopify.com slash work. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway. Like European linen